Welcome to Idaho Speaks, the place to learn about candidates and issues important to Idaho. My name is Ed, and I created this channel to overcome the media bias that plagues our communities and our state. When presented all the information, I believe you, the voter, will make the best decision for our future. At Idaho Speaks, we will give you the side of the story being hidden by mainstream media and big tech giants. My name is David Worley, and I'm the Southeast Idaho interviewer for the Idaho Speaks team. Our goal is to give you, the voter, as much access as possible to the field of state and local candidates around Idaho. Ed and I both do interviews, so if you as a candidate find yourself in a situation where you need to speak directly to the voters and are having trouble getting through the mainstream media, please reach out and we will do our best to get you on the program. We want to give Republican and conservative candidates a platform to communicate their ideas in a long-form format so that you, the voter, has the best information available to make your choice on Election Day. Idaho Speaks, your issues, your candidates, your state. With us today, we have Don Morrell, who is running for the Idaho House of Representatives in District 28. Don, thank you for coming on the program. Hi, David. How are you? Doing good. Well, this is your first time on Idaho Speaks, so we're just going to do an introductory episode and introduce you to our audience so just tell us a little bit about who you are and then why you're running for the House of Representatives. Hi, David. Um, so I was born and raised in Southeast Idaho. I lived on a little uh, family farm out in Taihe area. My uh, dad and father farmed potatoes, wheat and grain. We had a little uh, farm with animals, chickens, pigs, all the things. And uh, it was a great way great way to grow up. Um, I graduated from Highland High School, and shortly after that, I joined the United States Army, and I served four and a half years active duty, and am a Desert Storm veteran. I was deployed to Southwest Asia and spent some time in theater over there. Um, upon returning, I went to work for the United States Postal Service, retired in 2019, and um, my husband and I currently own a small gun shop in Pocatello. Um, so that's a little bit about myself. And that's Gunslingers on Main Street, right? It is, yes. All right, good deal. Yep. Yeah. So so what kind of prompted you to run for office? Well, um, I think especially the last two years, it has been very frustrating to watch the decline of our society in so many ways. Um, the overreach of government, as I see it, as they place mandates, decide who can open their business and who can't, um, want to tell people what to wear on their bodies and put in their bodies. Um, I am not, I'm not anti-vaccine, but I am anti-mandate. And so I felt like we needed more voices in our state house that reflected how I, f I saw a lot of my friends and neighbors feeling. So this is something that I think has come up with probably every person who I've interviewed for the state legislature. Um, you know, we look at the past couple of years with all the COVID restrictions, and I just so our listeners understand, because it's one thing to kind of talk about these in generic terms, but let's kind of drill down to the main issues, because... Yes, for a lot of people, that it looks like the pandemic is over, 
you know, and they're not really the focus anymore. It's not the thing anymore. But there's still actually a lot of mandates flying around out there, both in some government agencies, like an example, the Idaho Army National Guard uh, is still imposing the vaccine mandate from the military, not fighting it at all. And you, we still have private companies that are imposing the vaccine mandate on their employees, even though that the OSHA mandate failed in the courts, uh, it's still being imposed by private employers. So just so our listeners can understand where you fall in the mandates, are you opposed to just government mandates or also mandates that come from private sector companies? So this is a complicated topic because while I believe in employer rights and business rights, being a business owner, I understand that as a business owner, you need to have the freedom to run your business as you see fit. But basically where I fall on this topic is individual freedom to me trumps just about everything. And I don't think you can impose a mandate on an individual, especially when it comes to putting something in their body that is still at this point um, untested. I mean, it's not untested, but it's still experimental. We, we have not yet in, in the United States had the actual uh, vaccine that was, quote, approved, end quote. So would you support legislation you know, in Idaho now, from the Idaho state government that would prevent employers from making um, vaccination with the COVID shot a condition of employment? I would. I would. All right. Well, that's good to hear. So other pandemic issues, because these are things that just came up in the past um, legislative session or legislative session that's just kind of tying up right now. So it's not just the vaccine mandates, but there were bills also that have prohibited, you know, government entities, you know, state and local from imposing mask mandates. Where do you fall on those types of issues? I think, I think if you've got something that rises to the level of a pandemic, you need to educate more than mandate. I think if people receive education, not propaganda, they will make a responsible choice. And if it's if it's truly backed by science, people will do what they think is best for themselves, their families, and their communities. So I don't think mandates are the way to go. I'm especially opposed to, to masking our children. I think it's psychologically damaging to them and their young minds as they develop. Yeah, there's actually been a lot of interesting data coming out about that recently, specifically with development of speech mm-hmm. as an example. Recognition. Yes. And, and the bonds that they form when they can't verbalize, especially as, as tiny toddlers, their ability to recognize and bond with your face is, is being diminished. So as far as COVID policy goes, I mean, I hope that we are eventually going to get completely out of this, but you know, they've kind of resurrected Fauci recently and he's been popping it back in the news you know, we'll see if they ever try and retry these types of control measures again. Uh, you mentioned, you know, things about business shutdowns and closures and the, the lockdown methods and things like that. Just kind of explain what your position is in those types of tactics and techniques when it comes to dealing with a pandemic or the crises. Well, I think, so one of the things that I think we still need to address in Idaho is emergency powers. 
And I don't know that I have all the answers, but it needs to be discussed and we need to make some decisions so that those emergency powers don't go on for two continuous years. I think that was Are you talking about specifically the, the governor's powers? Yes. Yep. I, th I think that was allowed to carry on far too long. Um, and then can you, can you repeat the question? No, just me? the whole idea of locking down businesses or, or making some businesses essential and not non-essential. Right. Just kind of what are your thoughts on how that went during the pandemic and what we should do in the future? Well, I think again, it goes back to education, educating instead of mandating and people again will do the right and responsible thing. And some people, um, who, you know, one of the examples that I love were the, I think they were from New Jersey, the brothers that owned the gym mm -hmm. that got shut down when physical fitness and being healthy is one of the best things that can pre prevent serious COVID in an individual. Um, but yet they were all mandated to close. And I just think, I think that there are smart ways to do things. Um, we were allowed to keep our gym open for the majority of the pandemic. And you know what? We did great. We implemented more measures. We cleaned the equipment frequently. We stayed uh, our groups to family groups as we worked around the gym. They had some different protocols put, put in place and we were kept healthy and safe and allowed to continue our physical health which again helps prevent people from getting serious effects of COVID. Yeah, and I think it just seemed that there was, like you pointed out there, <clears throat> there are things that we know work, you know, we've known for a long time that like you pointed out, if you're generally healthy, you're less susceptible to disease, respiratory viruses are no different. And it just seems like, you know, yeah, we applied a lot of different things we hadn't done in the past. Or some of them were pretty nonsensical. Right. And one of the things, too, when it comes to educating, I one of the things that I cannot stand is that they didn't mention anything about taking additional vitamin D. Talking to your doctor and determining with your doctor whether you, you needed to increase your vitamin D intake. Vitamin D was one of the major factors as to how serious your COVID got. No, that's a good point. And the fact that our health industry and our CDC and our whoever, all the agencies, didn't help educate people as to how best prevent serious COVID. Um, so, it, it, so let's talk about that for a minute, because I think something that happened that I was surprised by, and maybe I shouldn't have been given how the trends in healthcare happened over the years anyway, but in terms of what state policy can do to help with that, it seemed like if you wanted to do something, if you were a doctor or you were a PA or you were any, any medical practice of any type, and you wanted to do something other than what the CDC recommended, you know, which was basically nothing. I mean, you're told like, hey, if you're sick, stay home. If you get really sick, go to the hospital. Uh, then if you're really, really sick, it put you on a ventilator. And a lot of those people didn't make it. Right. So, but if you want to try, you know, ivermectin, you want to try hydroxychloroquine, which now we have a lot of data showing that was all, actually all very effective. If you want to go the route of, you know, priming your body with supplements like vitamin D 
and vitamin C. There's a whole, I'm not familiar with the entire regimen, but there, you know, quercetin and all these other things, zinc levels, all these other things that people figured out fairly quickly in the, early in the pandemic that that would help you. But if you want to do anything other than what the CDC recommended, you are basically shunned or even sometimes your job is threatened if you're a doctor. And that's still going on. So would you support legislation that protects the ability of physicians to practice medicine and prescribe medications without interference from, you know, the Department of Health or hospital networks? And we're talking about normal stuff. Like, for example, ivermectin was, you know, approved for off-label use. But um, for some reason for COVID, it was forbidden. And if you tried to do it, you were a horrible person. Right. Yes, I would. I think one of the um, the biggest failures of Obamacare was the division that it put between patients and their doctors. Um, it it made the doctors more accountable to the insurance companies than to their own patients. I think, and and their healthcare is now dictated by the insurance companies more so than what the patient actually needs. Um, so yeah, I think that- No, that's a good point. We saw that in the military where initially TRICARE would cover ivermectin. And then once you know, a few doctors in the military figured out they could treat COVID with it, then for some reason, TRICARE wouldn't cover it. Right. You know, wouldn't allow them to prescribe it. And that's, I think that's to your point that where right. the insurance companies are dictating healthcare as opposed to what your, your doctor. Well, and then the few people the few doctors who were able to get around that for a time, then they started mandating the um, pharmacists from allowing those prescriptions to be filled. Yeah, so even if you so, could find a doctor, yes, it's hard to find a pharmacist. Yes, and that's just, that's not, boy, that is not the USA I grew up in. <laughs> it's very concerning, <laughs> very concerning. So you would support legislation that protects the ability of doctors to actually practice medicine? 100%. Yes. These these bureaucrats did not go to medical school, the majority of them. And if they did, they're so far removed from patient care that I don't think they're making logical or health-minded decisions. So but we kind of talked about the pandemic because you mentioned it, you know, kind of in your introduction there and kind of why you wanted to get into this race. Um, but I want to hear what you think are the top issues facing Idaho right now. What are the things that you're campaigning on and that are your kind of signature policy things that you're looking at as a few potential future legislator? Well, I can tell you um, one of the biggest reasons I am doing what I'm doing is that I um, it's all based on feeling. And my my feelings are that my Idaho way of life, the Idaho way of life of my family and friends and neighbors is being threatened um, most especially by Marxist ideologies um, that are creeping into our legislation, creeping into our schools. Um, we've seen it in states beside us and all around us. Um, and they're coming for us next. It's a concerted effort and there is a war on. And I do believe it's a war of good and evil, not left versus right. And so my gut and my heart and my servant's heart that, that I had from the time I was a young person and served in the military, I feel called to stand up and stand in the breach and stop those things from penetrating Idaho. 
So using this ring Fraser, you know, a, a war between good and evil, I want to explore that a little bit more because some people will say, well, that's really harsh language. You know, are we, are we talking about politics here? Are we talking about something else? So what specifically do you think is so threatening about Marxist ideology or what are, how is that being manifested in our society and in our government? Well, I think there are, I think there are good hearted people that are being lured into this Marxist ideology through the chant of benevolence. Um, many people think it's the good and kind thing to do to be all inclusive to everything and anything anybody wants to do. Um, decriminalizing pedophilia is a good example. And there are a lot of people who are heck bent on that agenda. Um, if you look at, at the new Supreme Court justice. Um, oh, that's been shocking, hasn't it? <laughs> yes, it has. But it's a form of activism that now we're going to have sitting on our Supreme Court. And people, I don't know if they're not aware of it or they're not paying attention, but it is very pernicious and it's very persistent and it's not going to stop. So... Yes, it's happening on the national stage, but I want to prevent it from creeping in here. So you talked about how we have these Marxist ideologies infiltrating our society and our government. And I've seen on your campaign literature and heard you speak a couple of places that you think that Marxist infiltration in education is specifically a problem and that school choice is part of that solution. So could you elaborate on you know, what you think the main issue is in our schools and then how school choice is part of that solution. You bet. So that problem. So um, I think that school choice would give parents their rights back when it comes to their children's education. They don't have to settle for what's in front of them. It will reassert uh, their rights and the best interests of the children over the convenience of the system. Um, school choice will infuse quality and accountability um, into the system, and it provides for an increased opportunity where before it was just, it, it's lacking. You know, when we have competition, things usually turn out better. You know, if hamburger A is subpar and you have an option to go to hamburger B and it's much better, Where's all the business going to go? Then Hamburger A has got to step up their game in order to compete with Hamburger B. And we kind of need the same uh, competition in our schools. And having those dollars follow the children, especially, would I think um, increase that competition. And the level of quality will just raise overall. Okay, so when you say school choice, because people mean different things by that phrase, you're, you're talking specifically about, you know, and there's different ways I understand to, to slice it, but you're talking about where the dollars follow the child to whatever institution they go to. That would, I think that would be my preference, but I also understand we have to start somewhere. I don't think we can often get the whole cow at once. Yeah. <laughs> we have to make payments or whatever. So, you know, there's a lot of places to start, but I think we should start. We definitely should start. But that's where you'd like to see the policy go, though. Yeah, absolutely. 
So I think it's a good point you brought up on on competition. And I'm always fascinated by this, how somehow when it comes to schools and other types of government activities, we get, you know, not, you know, some people just get freaked out by the idea that we're going to have competition. It's like, well, would I like it if I only had one car I could buy? Right. Would I like it if there was only one cell phone company? Would I like it if, like you example you pointed out, there's only one hamburger joint in town? I mean- Every other aspect of our lives, we enjoy competition. We want variety. I want the option that if I don't like this company or this service, you know, no longer is what it was when I first started, that I can go somewhere else. You know, we love having choices. Right. But for some reason in education, there are people who think that, that you know, no, in this sphere, we have to have one solution, one size fits all. So I have a little theory. I'm just going to float it out here. Okay. <laughs> I think people are emotionally invested in their schools. And they are, especially if they grew up in a small place, went to school there, they want their kids to go there because they had a great experience, blah, blah, blah. It just goes down through the generations. And we get married to this idea, and it's difficult to pull back and realize that anything government does it seems to bloat and overregulate, and it's more expensive. There's only one choice, like you were saying. They don't do anything better than than competition does. You know, the free market. They don't. We know this from lots and lots and lots of historical evidence. But I think we're emotionally invested in in these little community public schools that we've all gone to and and want our kids to go to and want them to have good experiences. So I think until we start seeing some successes from the school choice programs. Um, oh, we have to have some first. Yes, we do. And people have to people have to trust, I guess, put a little trust in the free market. So I I think you make a good point. I want to run this by you. So, you know, I remember having some, you know, pretty deep nostalgia for my high school. Me too. Um, you know, used to be the Pocatello Indians. Now it's, I don't know what they are, the bison, <laughs> the, the thunderclap or whatever. Yeah, I don't know what they are now. But <laughs> the point is, is that I, I was proud I went to Pocatello High School because, you know, my dad went there. Mm -hmm. My grandfather went there. Yep. You know, I'm looking on the wall of the, you know, past presidents of the high school, you know, the student body presidents. And I got, you know, my grandfather and my uncle up there. And they even I think they even still have some of my uh, grandfather's. Jack Worley have his football trophies, I think, are still in one of the trophy cases. So, it, anyway, it was, just, it was really cool, you it know. Is. Um is. But I think that you got a good point is that we have kind of this nostalgia for these things. And not understanding that those institutions just aren't what they were in right. the past. Right. And you know, I'm I'm younger than you, but you know, I'm not I'm getting almost a 40 now. And even when I went to high school, most of the valuable civics programs that had existed in obviously in the in the past have been gutted. And most of those things I learned about American government, American history were self-taught. Very little of it came from the school. So I think you got a good point there that, you know, we see, you know, the, the high school logo, we go to the football games, those types of things, but not realizing that, you know, the shell is kind of there, the building's still there, but really 
it's the experience not, is completely different. Yes, it's not, mm -hmm. and it's not really what we need for our kids anymore. Well, and the the, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know what the statistics are as far as how many students are we getting out of school with test scores comparable to 30 years ago. I would love to see that data. I haven't taken the time to look that up, but just as we're discussing this, I would love to see that. So data. I don't have it right in front of me, but this is something that came up during the uh, debates over school choice legislation this past session. I mean, there's a lot of data showing that our academic performance has actually been going down in Idaho, you know, for, for quite some time. And, and this has been going on nationally. I mean, there's all sorts of statistics on this. But I think that's a good point. Um, you know, I think this is also something where I want to run this by you, you know. So we have this nostalgia. We're kind of like really invested in our, in our public schools. But maybe competition is actually the way to save the public school. Because right now, if you're providing, you know, a lousy product in the public sector for the most part, who cares? <laughs> it's the only choice you have. Right. And then whether you're going to Highland, Pokey, or Century, here where we are, you know, switch to 25, you know, for the high schools, I mean, that's there's some shades of differences there, but I mean, really, it's kind of the same product, the same hamburger, no matter right. where you go, right? right? You know, I think, I want to know what you think about this. It seems that if you had competition, that the public schools, if they thought they were actually going to lose funding when they lost students to private schools. Mm -hmm. But maybe they would take a hard look at their curriculum and say, what can we do to improve? How can we provide the product and the service that will keep our students here? So when people worry about, you know, that privatization or competitions going to ruin the public schools, it seems like they might actually be the way to save them. Mm -hmm. And what do you think about that? I would agree. I think like, like we talked about the hamburgers, you, what is your incentive to improve your hamburger? If everybody's still coming and eating your hamburger. Because there's no other option. Right. Then then there's no in fact, you could you could even start leaving the pickles off. You could <laughs> leave off the you know, the ketchup and the mustard. And people would still put up with it because that's their only choice in town. And I don't I think our children deserve better. They deserve some choice. Our parents deserve choices. And um and we have the ability to give them those choices. We just need to open up our minds, think outside the box, and and know that, that our kids deserve better. So I always get questions from listeners. Uh, you know, sometimes people will ask and they'll say, hey, well, why don't you ask about some of the more boilerplate kind of questions that we hear on, you know, uh, other shows. So we try and actually mix it up here and talk about some things that are don't always show up in the news. You know, we'll get to come to some of those subjects later on. But I do want to ask you kind of some, some boilerplate questions that come up in Republican primaries because you're running, you know, as, as a Republican, your primary is on May 17th. So I'm assuming, because you and your husband own a gun store, that you're pretty bullish on the Second Amendment. But just for our listeners who are always concerned about that issue, just kind of how, what do you think about the Second Amendment and our gun rights? And what's, what's your general positions on those issues? My general position is that they shall not be infringed. Full stop. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> I had to ask, but you know, That's you okay. own a gun shop, so I was pretty sure of what the answer is going to be. Yep. Um, and I think that's, 
We're going to talk about taxation here in a second, but before we get there, we are all experiencing. I mean, unless unless you're somebody who's got more money than you know what to deal with, everybody right now is getting pinched, whether it's at the gas pump or the grocery store, and just the price of everything is going up. So I just want to kind of hear what you think when it comes to things like taxes, like the grocery tax or reducing the fuel tax. You know, we've seen some states have suspended their fuel tax or, or cut it in half. You know, some people said, hey, well, we're going to suspend it for a year or two years because this inflation might last for an extended period of time. But do you think the government has a role to provide this type of targeted relief or, or what, how do you or, or should we just leave things the way they are? This, this too is a complex issue, um, maybe outside of my uh, expertise. But I, given that the government imposes all these taxes on us, mm-hmm. yes, I do think they have some responsibility to ease that burden when everyone is overburdened because of the economy. Okay, so you'd be in favor of things like suspending the gasoline tax or or reducing it? Absolutely, and I think this is another area where legislators have got to think outside the box to find proactive solutions to not just immediate problems, but what could, you know, potentially become a long-lasting issue. And, And the crunch on families is real. No, I mean, I, you know, I... I don't even have a huge SUV. You know, I got five kids. We can barely cram them in our in our Forerunner. You know, um, it's an older model, but I filled up the other day and it was dang near a hundred dollars. Yeah, you know, it was like eighty seven, ninety bucks. Yep. <laughs> you know, and I was just looking at them, going, "Wow!" Like start walking places. Absolutely, <laughs> this is just out out of control. People make fun of me because I'm a gun shop owner that drives a Prius, but I'm also practical. <laughs> I'm, I'm not for spending more money than I absolutely need to, uh, whether it's personal or in your government. So, Well, um, let's close up on an issue that I've seen um, you reference in speeches, and I think it might be on your webpage. I can't remember, but I, I know I've certainly seen you talk about it in a couple of candidate forums and things. So. We had the pandemic. We had all these crazy social controls we put in place, mass mandates, vaccine mandates, business lockdowns, all this stuff. And something that's come out recently is this idea of the, the social credit system, you know, and companies are starting to have these things called ESG scores, environmental, so- societal, I think, social governance. And it looks like, you know, I'm just kind of, you know, throwing out, th- throwing this out here. It looks like a lot of the stuff that went on during the pandemic, it was like laying, almost like conditioning us for more types of social control. Right. And when you look at this system that's emerging, it kind of has a lot of similarities to the Chinese social credit system. And you, I've heard you talk about that in the past. I just kind of want to hear what you think about the issues surrounding the ESG system and what you think state policy should do, if anything, about it. Well, um, it's really hard to- to find good solid information on it, um, which should worry people, I think. Yeah. Um, most of the information is based on ESG investing. So 
that individuals can determine whether or not they want to invest with a company because of their ESG score, their uh, environmental social governance score. And it's based on um, how many emissions they create. There's a whole bunch of factors that go into creating this score. How many women company. are on your board? How many yes. minorities? Yes. How um, many all you know, the LGBTQ plus whatever? Yes. Yeah. So that's what that's what makes up these companies' scores. But they are now imposing these scores on individuals. Um, a good friend of mine, uh, Randy Armstrong, just told me that he had an ESG score on his bank statement. And when he called to ask about it, they essentially told him, yeah, your credit score is old news. We, we go by loaning you money and all these things based on this new ESG score. And his ESG score was kind of low because the things that he chose to purchase with his debit card or whatever they're keeping track of all that. So I think this is an important point to bring up. You know, sometimes when people hear the social credit score, they think, oh, is it going to be just my regular credit score? You know, because your regular credit score is, you know, basically the bank or credit card company, whoever, is trying to gauge how likely are you to pay back the money they loan you. They look at, right. you know, how much debt do you have, what's your income like, all those different things. This is more... Do you conform yes. to the ideology right. that we prefer? Are, right. are your spending habits, how you spend your money, how you spend your time, how, what your company even does? Like, I mean, you're part of an industry yes. that I'm sure is not going to get a favorable ESG score. It doesn't matter exactly. if, if you run your gun store off of, you know, if you got a wind farm on top of your gun store, they still aren't going to care because you're selling guns and they don't like that. Right. And that's, it's already an issue with gun shop owners being able to find insurance. Um, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a real problem. The, the cancel culture is real, and it hits home on so many different levels. It's not this, just on social media. No. And this, uh, this ESG, they promote a singular morality, a singular morality. Everybody's idea of what is moral varies, but this ESG score promotes a singular morality. And if you do not conform your score will be lowered and you will have less access. They might throttle your internet. They may punish you in various ways to encourage you to conform to what they believe is right and moral. So that, that's an interesting distinction there because, you know, sometimes we talk about things purely in the realm of politics as if we're just having policy discussions about tax rates and kind of being counter type discussions of policy stuff. But what you brought up there is that the ESG system is really a worldview, you know, where they think that these things are not just, you know, hey, we don't want to give you this loan because I think you can pay it back, but it's we don't want to give you this loan because we disagree on a moral level with the fact that you sell guns. Right. And therefore, we're going to make it more difficult for you to do your business. Exactly. Yeah, I remember running into this a little bit when I was, and this is not new. I think the gun stores have probably been the forefront of this. You know, other companies are experiencing these problems now, but, you know, gun store owners have been dealing with this stuff since Obama. Mm -hmm. um, I remember when I owned an ammunition company for a little while, um, same thing you pointed out, very narrow options for insurance. Yeah. Like there's only a handful of firms in the country that even do it now. Right. Well, before we uh, end the interview, we're almost out of time here. 
Are there any issues that you want to bring up or anything about your race you want to talk about before we close out? Uh, not much other than I'm, I'm excited for this opportunity. It's, it was a hard fought decision <laughs> and, um, and I just, I want the voters to know that I know who I'm working for. I will work for you. Um, I am not someone who is going to campaign as a conservative and turn my back on my constituency and vote like a Democrat when I go to Boise. I believe in what I've talked about here today. I believe in conservative principles. I believe in our founding documents. And I love this country and I love Idaho. And I want to keep it great. I want to um, implement as many Idaho first principles as we can and and stop stop the federal overreach and stop the Marxist ideologies from getting into our state, into our children. And I just, I, I want to be there for the people who aren't able to see what's coming because I can see it. I can see it coming and we need, we need somebody in Boise that's going to stand and say, no, not on my watch. All right. Well, thank you, Don. And now you're running in the Bannock County Republican primary. You do have an opponent. I do. So if people want to see you in Boise, they got to be sure to show up on May 17th. And where can people go to learn more about your campaign and perhaps contribute or volunteer? So you can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash Morell, M-O-R-R-E-L-L 28. I do not have a website. Um, I also have an email address and it is Dawn, D-A-W-N-L, Morell, M-O-R-R-E-L-L at gmail.com. So you can contact me that way. And if you'd like to make a donation, they are always welcome. This is far more expensive than I'd ever dreamed. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> well, as they say, uh, money's a mother's milk of politics. Yeah, yeah. apparently. Yeah. Who uh, knew? <laughs> it, takes, uh, it takes money to, to, to wage a campaign. So It does. All right. Well done again. Thank you for coming on the program. Thanks and for having me. To the rest of our listeners, thank you for listening to Idaho Speaks. We've reached the end of the episode, but not the end of the issue. Please share this episode with your friends and family. If you have questions or would like to share your own issues and ideas, visit www.idahospeaks.com and click Share an Issue. Your state, your voice, Idaho Speaks.